This episode of That's What G Said podcast is sponsored by Cindy Carava. Visit cindycarava.com for all of your real estate needs. If you have a, a moment, head on over there right now. Give her a little support. She has been awesome and uh, one of the biggest supporters of That's What G Said podcast. So if you need anything at all in the field of real estate, if you want to just check on uh, your home, see how much it's worth, if you want to upgrade, anything at all, go check out the website and uh, shoot her an email a great, great person, and she will help you out and take really good care of you. On this episode, that's what she said. I talk about the Dodgers and the the disappointment. A little NBA discussion on the preseason games and uh, issues that are happening with uh, the NBA and with China. We'll give our NCAA best bets for the weekend. We will recap the week five NFL games and then we will discuss the week six NFL games. We'll give you our bets for the week. Some horse racing Saturday. A couple plays from Keeneland, play at Belmont, a couple at Santa Anita, and we'll close things out talking about the new landscape in the world of wrestling. It is just unbelievable. There's so much content out there right now. So, an action packed episode of That's What G Said podcast. Hope you all enjoy. Cleveland, the soothing sounds of my good friend bringing us in the catchy That's What G Said podcast theme song. Hope everyone's having a very nice week, whatever you're out there doing. Busy in the world of sports and lots going on all over. Yes, yes, yes. Baseball, I'm I'm disappointed. We'll get to the, the feelings on the Dodgers in just a second. We're going to talk Really everything going on in sports We're going to go through football We're going to go through some college We'll talk baseball We'll talk a little NBA We're going to give you some horse racing You're not going to find that really anywhere else Before we get into all that though The next best movies tournament we're going to have on That's What G Said Podcast Remember all the, the sports ones we did earlier And remember we did the best animated Disney movies Well, what month is it? It's October, right? So that's Halloween. So, ooh, spooky. We're going to do scary movies. So now I need all of your help. On Twitter, it's me, Gino B. On Facebook, on Instagram, send me posts with your favorite movies, uh, your favorite scary movies, the ones that just scared the hell out of you when you were a kid, the new ones, classic ones, you name it. These are some of the ones, you know, I'm thinking Stephen King's, Wes Craven, Alfred Hitchcock's, some of the ones that are already on my short list. And then I'm going to uh, gather all uh, all the uh, the entry, not entries, but all the posts. And <clears throat> I'll go through some articles and I'll, I'll do all my research and I'll, I'll formulate a, a bracket. And then we'll, we'll have the voting like always over on Twitter. So make sure to go follow. And I need your help. 
These are some of the ones I'm thinking Saw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Carrie, Silence of the Lambs, Cabin in the Woods, Screams, It, Get Out, uh, The Blob, Dracula, The Birds, Poltergeist, Blair Witch Project, Nightmare on Elm Street, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Shining, Jaws, Night of the Living Dead, The Thing, Halloween, Psycho, The Exorcist. Those are just uh, some of the ones on the early, early first list. So let me know. Head on over to social media. I want to hear from you. What are the movies that just scared you to death? I I want to know which ones would terrified you. You'll never watch again. Maybe they scarred you. Uh, what what ones t- uh, turned me on to maybe some scary movies that I didn't know? Because I love scary movies, and uh, we're coming up on Halloween, so. So we're down to four in baseball, and we saw a crazy game five in the Atlanta Cardinals series where the Cardinals scored 10 runs in the first inning, put Atlanta out of their misery. The Yankees swept through their series against the Twins, and the Astros, with the best record in baseball, they had to go to five games uh, to get through the Rays. Now, the Dodgers, after about 36 hours of... uh, of internalizing everything. I'll give you kind of my overall thoughts. First of all, they lost to some good pitching. Any team who's going to run into Scherzer, Strasburg, Strasburg, Corbin in a five-game series is going to be in some trouble. Nobody can really match up with those three pitchers. Now, maybe Houston, but I think their they're top three are just as good. When you have Strasburg and and Scherzer on their A game, they're right up there with Verlander and Cole. And, you know, you go through, everybody's, you know, very upset with Dave Roberts. Everybody's very upset with Clayton Kershaw. And I think they they have the right to be. Now, let me get this straight. They're not the reason why the entire series was lost. I would say that Dave Roberts and Clayton Kershaw lost you game five. It's unfair to blame the rest of the series on them. But I think it's very fair to give them the bulk of the blame for what went down in game five. Now, when you look through the Dodgers, you know, lineup, there were some big holes in the lineup that hurt them throughout the series. I mean, I'm, trust me, I'm as mad, sad, bummed, frustrated as anyone but you look back and you go, you know what? This wasn't this was an upset, sure, but this wasn't some huge, incredible, inferior team beating some big bad Dodgers team. Like in a small series, really crazy things can happen in baseball. Dave Roberts is coming back. There were Obviously, some moves in Game 5 that frustrated me as a fan, and I think that might have been the wrong moves. This year, the Dodgers, whether or not you thought their bullpen was good, they actually had the best bullpen ERA in the National League, and they had a lot of options in the bullpen. Yeah, Kenley wasn't quite as good as Kenley's been in some years, but take Kenley out of the equation. They went and traded for Joe Kelly, who was incredible in the postseason last year. Julio Urias was good in the postseason last year for them again. Kenta Maeda has been great for them in the postseason the last few years. You brought up Gonsolin and May. You went and traded for Adam Kalerik. It's a lot of options in a bullpen. 
You have Stripling down there. Most teams don't have that many good options. In fact, if you looked at the the teams in the National League, the Cardinals, the Braves, and the Nationals, the Dodgers had better and deeper bullpens than all three of those teams. It was how they were used, which was unfortunate. It's game five. It's three to one in the seventh inning. Two runners on for Washington, and Clayton Kershaw comes into the game to try to get one out against Adam Eaton. And he does. Three straight pitches, three strikes, out of the inning, 3-1 Dodgers. We're going to the eighth. Dodgers come up, and then you're going to the eighth. And you leave Clayton Kershaw in. I don't even mind leaving Clayton Kershaw in to start the to start the inning against Rendon. Rendon hits a home run, and you know what? It wasn't a bad pitch from Kershaw. Rendon hit a home run on a Good pitch, a low pitch, he muscled it out. That right there is when Dave Roberts has to go and get Kalerik. You have mentioned multiple times that you have Kalerik on this team, on this roster, for the reason of facing Soto. Kalerik has been incredible down the stretch. I've heard a lot of fans and, and people frustrated that the Dodgers didn't make a big move at the, at the trade deadline this year. The Dodgers didn't make a big move. Who were who the moves at the trade deadline this year? Go look at all the moves and see if they worked out. And tell me if you would have wanted to trade Dustin May or Will Smith or one of our really good, not even prospects, one of the really good players on this team that's contributing right now for Craig Kimbrell, who was awful down the stretch. Green was not very good. Melanson was not great. Those were the moves that were out there. Keichel, none of those were getting you over the hump. There was no Verlander move to be made this year. There was just nobody out there like that. Especially in the bullpen, which is what the Dodgers were looking for. The guy from Pittsburgh, Vasquez, who everyone was saying the Dodgers should have got. Well, he got caught up in a big scandal. He wouldn't even have been playing. That would have been an absolute waste. So... I don't blame the front office. This was a very good baseball team that was built very well. That if they won game five, they still would have had against the Nationals, they still would have had a very good chance to win the World Series. There's no magic formula to say what clutch is. And this is one thing that I've I've been seeing from a lot of fans. Go get players who are going to be good in the playoffs. Huh? I don't get that. Let's use the Boston Red Sox for an example, right? Their whole team last year, they were incredible in the playoffs, weren't they? They didn't even make it this year. What about the Cubs from a few years ago? They were awesome. They weren't in the playoffs this year. That's kind of my point. I think, is it fair to be upset that the Dodgers haven't won a World Series in the seven-year run where they've made the playoffs every year? Sure, it's frustrating. To call them chokers or to say that they need to make a whole bunch of changes, I mean, I disagree. It comes down to, would you rather have a team that you know is going to get you there every year? I would. Because, you know, we look at the teams that have been good in the postseason and those Players aren't as consistent every year getting you there. For all the crap that Kershaw gets, how many times do you think the Dodgers 
make the playoffs without Kershaw in the seven-year run. I think probably three, half. Probably three or four times they're not even getting there. Too many fans and Dodger fans and baseball fans in general act like you just magically drop into the playoffs. You know it's a 162-game season to get there. It's a lot of work, and there are a lot of good teams and good players that don't make it. Boom, perfect example this year. The Boston Red Sox team that was so good last year. They were unhittable. Chris Sale, Evaldi, Joe Kelly, Price. Those guys are untouchable. Look at the years they had this year. So from a fan, what what would you rather have? Would you rather have... A team like the Dodgers who are built well and very consistent and you know they're going to get there every year? Or would you rather have an up and down team that might win one year and then never get there? For me, I know how it is in sports and I know that it's such a crapshoot in the baseball playoffs that you have to be there. You have to get there. You have to be in it to win it. If you're a Dodger fan and you're upset and you're burning Kershaw jerseys and you're cussing out you know, everyone... Honestly, take a minute and look around the league and look at other teams and other organizations and and ask some of their fans, hey, would you have traded for a playoff run or back-to-back World Series runs or really good years? I would have. Am I disappointed the Dodgers aren't going on? Absolutely. Do I think that they should have been good enough to get through Washington? 100%. The matchup scared me with the pitching, and I'm not... I'm not looking at this Dodger team that is very well built, that is young, that is deep. I don't look at them and think they need a whole lot. Like, What do you look at this Dodger team and, and think they need? Maybe, may, maybe another bat in the middle of the lineup. What hurt them in the playoffs and what hurt them a lot this year was one of their moves they went and made for A.J. Pollock. He was hurt like he generally tends to be. And so they didn't get a lot of production from him, and in particular, in the playoffs, A.J. Pollock might have had one of the worst playoff series in the history of baseball. Pollock ended up 0 for 13 with 11 strikeouts. Seager was 3 for 20. He had 8 strikeouts. He didn't even have an RBI. It seemed like Seager was coming up consistently with runners in scoring position, with opportunities to break games open, to get big hits, and he just couldn't do it. You know, Cody Bellinger struggled a little bit, but what I will give him credit for is that he's so talented, When even if he maybe isn't swinging the bat well, if he gets on base, he can steal bases, and he plays great defense. And it's unfortunate because when you play a good team like the Washington Nationals are, it's, it shouldn't be a blowout. This shouldn't have been a, a Dodgers sweep, or this shouldn't have been a series where the Dodgers crushed them, but the Dodgers still should have won this series, and when you get up 3-1 with six outs left, you have to win that game. And that's when Dave Roberts needs to start going out to out. Okay, Kershaw's in. He gives up a home run to Rendon. Now you go get Kalerik. You bring Kalerik in for Soto. He's gotten Soto out already three times in the series. You use Kalerik for Soto. Then after Kalerik, you go get Maeda. You got Maeda to Kelly to Kenley. Boom. Joe Kelly comes into the game when it's tied. He pitches a really good inning. And instead of bringing in Kenley or making a change after, he leaves Kelly in for another inning. I'm wondering why Roberts leaves Kelly in when Kelly only pitched five innings all of September. He's been dealing with an injury. 
So asking him to go two innings is probably not smart when you just got a great inning out of him. Why not ask Maeda to go two innings earlier when Maeda can go multiple innings? I don't get that. It seemed like the last couple years, he really didn't want to use Maeda as much as he should have. And Maeda has been the best pitcher in the Dodgers bullpen now for three consecutive postseasons. Max Muncy was awesome. Justin Turner was awesome. Like always, uh, Justin Turner is just incredible in the playoffs every year. Jock had a really good run this year. Kiki had a couple big hits. Freeze, uh, you know, did did what Freeze does. Comes in, gets big hits and big moments. Really frustrating. And, I, and like I said, Clayton Kershaw and and Dave Roberts deserve the shoulder the blame for this particular case. They don't get the blame for every year. Clayton doesn't get the blame for all of this. I hate the playoff choker crap. Like, go look at how many good playoff outings he's had. He's had some bad ones now in his last four or five, uh, the two in the World Series last year, and then this one. Game two of this series was not that bad. Everyone was acting like he gave up 10 runs. He gave up three runs over six innings. That was the same line that Strasburg had. Problem is the Dodgers couldn't come back. When the, whereas the Nationals could So that's the thing What do you do when you have a team Or when you have a, a a team of players That are good enough And better than everybody else in the regular season They get you there But then they get a little tight in the postseason I'm an honest question I don't know And that's why I don't think you can really make Major changes with this Dodger team That won 106 games Ryu's going to likely get paid and go somewhere else So They'll have they'll look a little different. The word is that they're they might be going and spending money on Rendon, or they're interested in Rendon. Maybe they add another bat in the middle of that lineup. You look at the staff though with Walker Bueller. Whether or not you like Kershaw, look at his numbers again. He was great this year. This year in the regular season, people are gonna say, "Oh, regular season doesn't matter." You bet your ass it matters. What do you mean the regular season doesn't matter? You need someone to get you through that regular season. To get you into the playoffs Maybe he's not the guy when you get there But he's sure as hell the guy to get you there Seven years in a row And now the Dodgers have a guy Bueller, that's their guy He's their Ace now who you can throw In game one and game seven And game five in elimination games They have their guy, Kershaw doesn't have to be that guy anymore He was put in a bad position That's what I don't. I didn't like Is Roberts didn't need Kershaw to be that guy this year again Four years ago Sure, he needed Kershaw to be that guy Not anymore You had options in that bullpen, Roberts This was a bad one And you're coming back next year And now What a bad taste in the mouth for Roberts and for Kershaw Because I Honestly, I'm upset with, with how Kershaw performed in this Game 5 in a lot of his prior playoff performances, I'm sticking up for him because I think he's been asked to do too much in a lot of those games. I think people forget some of his really good games, and sometimes he's gone through six innings great and then gone into the seventh or the eighth, and that's when he's got torched a little bit because the Dodgers couldn't go to their bullpen. I feel really bad for Kershaw, though, for, for just his mental state right now. And it is, oh, yeah, he's got tons of money. You go home to all the money. You got millions of dollars, but he said it again, I failed. I failed again. Everything you say about me in the playoffs is true. He doesn't deserve that, Kershaw. For as good of a baseball player as he's been, and for as much as he's done for the Dodgers, I get it 
hurts me. I, I like want to cry for him when I'm watching that go on because you, you know how much this guy wants it. And if you, if you follow the Dodgers and you know how good Kershaw is and how good he's been and what he's done and how hard he works and just what a good person he is. He's very charitable in the community. Um, he helps the young guys. It seems like he's a great leader. I just can't believe that happened to him again. Right? And now, if you're Kershaw for the next 365 days, literally, it doesn't even matter when next year's baseball season starts. It only matters once the playoff starts. And that's what's what's messed up for where the Dodgers are at right now. Because that's what happened this year. A lot of Dodger fans... We're not enjoying this year. They were not enjoying the process, the 106 wins, the the all-time, you know, great Dodger team that this was, all all the the records. People weren't enjoying it. Everybody's saying, "Well, if they don't win the World Series, it doesn't matter." Which is sort of true, but that's a pretty crappy way to go into every year, right? Well, if we don't win the World Series this year, it's an absolute failure. I don't agree with that. I agree with the World Series being the goal. But it, every team is different where you are, your trajectory. Had the Dodgers made it to the World Series again this year and lost in a good series to the Yankees or to the Astros, you're telling me that would have been a disappointing year? I don't think so. I think losing in the first round is, is disappointing. I'll tell you this. This is a lot more disappointing than losing in the World Series. So for all the fans that... Or for all the people that said, well, if you're Dodgers, if the Dodgers don't make it to the World Series... That's crap, and I. This is what you, you know. This is what you get. We were all saying World Series are bust, and you don't even make it to the World Series now. So what do you do? How? What adjustments do you make? You go get Rendon, because otherwise, you look at this team and this roster is built. They're built. Maybe, maybe they need a little more help in the bullpen. I don't. I don't personally even really think they do. They have a lot of options down there. Bullpen arms vary from year to year. They're like the highest variance. This was a weak year for bullpens in general. There were not a lot of lockdown relievers. The only team that had an excellent, excellent bullpen was the of these playoff teams that was a bullpen that you looked at, you said, ah, we probably can't get to that bullpen, was the Yankees. Everybody else's bullpen is very hittable. Oh, so now... Sit back and watch the Yankees play the Astros and the Cardinals play the uh, the Nationals and wonder woulda, coulda, shoulda, what if as a Dodger fan. And very disappointing. It's been a great run of seven years, but just uh, after the back-to-back World Series and a team that honestly, this is the, like that's what's crazy about everyone saying, oh, the Dodgers got to fire, this, trade Kershaw, fire. This was the best team the Dodgers have had. This is the deepest team they've had. This was the team... That was the most likely to win the World Series. And you're going to say, what do you mean? They well, they lost in the first round. Yeah, they lost in a series of five to some good pitching. Good good hitters can go cold for a few games. We saw that happen. Now, hopefully, can Corey Seager have a year where he maybe he looks internally like Cody Bellinger did last year. Remember how bad Cody Bellinger was in the playoffs last year and he couldn't even get into the games in the World Series and he wasn't hitting against lefties? And he went in the offseason and he altered his swing and he changed some things. And Cody Bellinger is gonna be is the MVP this year. Can Seeger make some 
some tweaks in his swing, lay off the inside breaking stuff, maybe become a little more patient and and work on trying to get a little bit better at bats up there. Good luck to the Nationals, good luck to the Cardinals, good luck to the Yankees, good luck to the Houston Astros and all the fans out there. I think for a lot of the 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 people talking about how the Dodgers blew it, which they did, the Nationals still had to win that game. Rendon still had to come up and hit a home run. Soto still had to come up and hit a home run. Kendrick still had to come up and hit a grand slam. Their players still had to execute. It's it's a two-way street, right? The Dodgers don't just blow it. They still had to make the plays, which they did. And in this particular series, and in Game 5, and in the last few innings of Game 5, the Dodgers got outplayed and they got outcoached. Does that mean that everybody deserves to get fired and, and traded? And No. I still want Clayton Kershaw as a number two, number three starter. He's still excellent. He was an all-star this year. You just have to be a little bit more careful about how and when you're using him in the playoffs now after he's been worn down through the year. He's a guy now that gives up a lot more home runs. He's more susceptible to, as most and many are. There's a baseball rant. We went all over the place, but you get the true feelings of a Dodger fan. It's a bummer now. It is. But we will quickly make the transition to basketball season. Oh, Lakers. So much fun. They've had two preseason games so far. Their first preseason game, Anthony Davis had 17 points and 7 rebounds in the first quarter. I'm not going to act like the Lakers are a guaranteed NBA champion. But what's so much fun about this team is they have upside now. They have, they sure they they are, they are on the list of you know five to six teams that can win the title. So when you know that you have you're rooting for a team that at least has a shot, that's what feels great. And this team has a shot. And let, when, let's go through the NBA. This is going to be a the most fun basketball season I can remember because there's going to be parity. We don't have a Warriors team with Steph and Clay and Durant and Draymond and Cousins like last year, or a team that everyone's scared of. We don't have a Big Bad Spurs team. We don't have a Miami Heat team or a or a a proven Kobe Shaq Laker team, Kobe Powell Laker team. Like there aren't any of those squads out there. There are some good, well-built teams, but there's nobody that we can definitively say they're the favorite. This team is going to be in the finals. We we don't we can't say that this year. We got a good young Hawks group with Trey Young, Herder, Collins, and Reddish over there. The Celtics now, new look Celtics. They got rid of Kyrie. They brought in Kemba, better leader, and they're going to hope to kind of centralize their team around Tatum and Brown and Kemba. And Hayward apparently has been looking good. He might be able to bounce back now um, with a little more time since his injury. Brooklyn's got Kyrie and maybe KD at the end of the year. Some reports are saying the Bulls, young group with Markinen and Levine. The Cavs are really young, but they, they're fun with Garland, Sexton, and KPJ. You have Doncic and Porzingis and the Mavs. Denver has Jokic and Murray and Millsap and Mike Porter Jr. now. Who knows what they're going to get from him? This different Warriors team where you have D'Angelo now with Curry and Draymond. Who knows when Clay's going to return. The Rockets, Harden and Westbrook together. The Pacers with Oladipo and with Brogdon. 
Oladipo probably out till January, February. How about the Clippers are going to be awesome. You know, I've been getting into a lot of battles with Clipper fans about who's going to be better with the Lakers or the Clippers. Personally, they're both going to be damn good. And as long as Kawhi and Paul George stay healthy, and as long as LeBron and Anthony Davis stay healthy, like the major pieces of these two organizations, these two teams should be two of the the top four teams in the West. Maybe not as far as regular season wins, but it, when when you look at the teams and, and getting into the playoffs and who do you think is going to be tough to get out in a series, it would probably be the Lakers and the Clippers. The Grizzlies are young. They're a few years away, but Morant, Clark, Jaron Jackson Jr., Melton, Josh Jackson, they, they have a fun young group. Miami with Jimmy Butler now. You got Mil- Giannis back in Milwaukee with a chip on his shoulder. The Pelicans... They might be the most fun team in the league now with Zion. And then the, the trade they made with the Lakers, they got Lonzo and Ingram. Reddick's over there to give them some veteran stability. The Knicks with their 50 power forwards they have. It's going to be a good year for Julius Randle. Barrett, uh, Knox is over there. The Thunder, what's going to happen with CP3? Are they going to keep trade him? They got Gallinari and Shea Gilgis-Alexander over there in OKC. Orlando had a good year last year. They returned a pretty similar team with Vucevic and Aaron Gordon at the helm. 76ers, one of the top favorites in the East. Embiid, Simmons, Horford, and uh, made a trade with Miami, Josh Richardson. You have the Suns with Aiton and Booker and Rubio. And Ubre Saric is over there. Bridges. I think they should be a little improved. Portland now with Whiteside up there. Their team's going to look a little different with uh, a different big to add along with Lilliard and McCollum. The Young Kings from last year with Fox, Bogdanovich, Barnes, Bagley, Buddy Heald. The Spurs. You really never, never can count them out. Every time I think the Spurs are done... Popovich just shows you what a good coach he is and what a great organization they are. And with Aldridge and DeRozan and White and Murray and Gay and Carroll, they should have pieces. You have the Raptors with Siakam and Lowry, Gasol and Newby and Ibaka. And then the Jazz with Conley, Gobert, Badanovich. They're going to be one of the favorites in the West. The Wizards maybe looking to trade John Wall. I was reading something about a possible John Wall to OKC. Get CP3 back to try to convince Bradley Beal to stay with the Wizards with CP3. They have Rui Ashimura, Isaiah Thomas over there. This is going to be a fun basketball season. It hasn't been really fun the last couple of weeks, though, with this controversy with China. What happened? Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, tweeted out. Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. There's a lot going on between Hong Kong and China. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on international politics and and what's happening there. But I do know that the NBA has a big relationship with China and they were about they were in Japan and China playing in preseason games. The Lakers just played Brooklyn two nights ago in China in a preseason game. Well, after that tweet went out about an hour or two later the Houston Rockets owner sent out a tweet that said uh, the owner Tillman Fertitta responded saying that Daryl Morey does not speak for the Houston Rockets or for the NBA uh, you know 
And, and this is what's difficult is because with politics, with international politics like that, with China, with Hong Kong, I'm not going to pretend to know what's who's right, who's wrong, all the intricacies. But I do know that that's probably not the best thing that Daryl Morey should have done is just any tweet at all. What makes it difficult, though, is of all of the major sports organizations, the NBA is very progressive in that it likes their players to speak out against real-world issues, um, against the president, and and really, really give their feelings. And we've seen, you know, Popovich and Steve Kerr and LeBron many times come out with thoughts on a tragedy happening somewhere or a political issue. This issue, however, we haven't really heard much from from anyone, and I and I think that's good. I think that's good, but a lot of people are calling Steve Kerr a coward right now. Because Steve Kerr isn't talking a whole lot about it. And then I saw a comment that Steve Kerr made and he was talking about how, you know, people ask him about, people don't ask him about what happens in America and, and, uh, you know, he doesn't, they don't talk about shootings in schools. And for me, and this is just me, I don't know how Steve Kerr does things or how LeBron does things or how Popovich does things or how Adam Silver does things, but I know. That I have a show right here. That's what G said. I have another show with Mike Abadier, the Mike Abadier show. I don't talk about something unless I've researched it, unless I'm passionate about it, unless I sort of know what I'm talking about. So notice, I don't talk about a lot of politics ever on the show because I don't know political issues well. I don't know the ins and outs. I don't take the time to follow it. I just don't. It doesn't interest me. So I'm not going to come out and talk about things that I don't know. So for me, if how much of an expert on Chinese politics do you think LeBron or Steve Kerr or Popovich really are? I don't think they could be possibly that well-versed. It's a little different when you're talking about things in, that happen in your own home and in your own country than in somebody else's also. What's gotten frustrating to some people is that you know, Kerr and LeBron are willing to badmouth the United States, but they're not willing to say something negative about China. Maybe they just don't know and they just don't feel educated enough to make a smart comment. That's how I feel with a lot of things. And if I don't think, like, if I don't know, I don't talk a lot of hockey because I don't know hockey well. I'll bring a hockey guest on sometime and we can talk about that. But even then, I'm I'm going to learn a little bit from that and I can look some things up. But I'm not going to know enough about hockey to give you an educated opinion or take on hockey. That's how I feel with this situation. Even if Kerr reads up a little bit or LeBron reads up a little bit, are they going to know enough about the struggle and the history of what's going on between, you know, China this, and this is weird because Yao Ming got pissed off. <laughs> He's the president of the, the Chinese Basketball Association. They, The NBA released a statement on Weibo, which is the Chinese Twitter, and it was different from the statement that the NBA released on their regular Twitter. So they're being like a little... It's just, this is just a really weird incident overall. It's It's kind of a polarizing incident. Because 
The NBA wants their players and their, you know, coaches to speak up, but they probably don't want them to speak up against one of their big partners in China. Apparently, if China were to back out of their relationship with the NBA, that would majorly impact the NBA salary cap to where it would be reduced 15 to 20%. Because China has such a big relationship with the NBA, they help pay the bills. So this is where things get tricky. Is someone like Steve Kerr being told not to really come out and say anything? Is someone like LeBron or Popovich being told not to say anything in this situation? Are they not because this is their employer? Are they not because they don't know the situation well? Now, when the Lakers played against Brooklyn in the preseason game the other night, there was no media availability. It was was pretty crazy for a lot of the players. They weren't allowed to kind of talk with the media before and after the game. It was a... I'm kind of surprised the players actually played that game after what's been happening because this is this was getting a little scary when you have a lot of these NBA players overseas or over not overseas over in China now and there's incidents happening and you have a lot of uh you have a lot of Chinese people that were pissed off by what Maury said or uh maybe responses to that the very very as I mentioned just polarizing situation Adam Silver was supposed to go meet with Yao in China to discuss this and this could have major ramifications to the whole league so we'll have to keep our eyes on this situation and it is um, an ongoing situation a little bit more about the game so far we've seen from the Lakers is LeBron and Anthony Davis look to have a lot of chemistry and I think the Lakers have some holes that people expect it and that's what this preseason is for they've been trying to figure out their guard rotation so you know Rondo Caldwell Pope Caruso Danny Green Avery Bradley are going to be for the most part in that mix and so it's going to be how are they using them in the starting lineup alongside LeBron Anthony Davis Uh, I think it's going to be a battle between Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee for the starting center spot, and then the backup big man, probably JaVale to start, and then uh, Dwight to come off the bench. And then they kind of work on some of their defense and see, do they need another wing type? You remember, right now, they, they look a little short out there because Kuzma and Dudley haven't played so far. So we'll keep monitoring that Kuzma injury. I, it doesn't sound like from, from following Kuzma that it was too bad. So I, I don't think he'll be out too much longer. And we're getting ready to start this NBA season. I mean, it is not far off. At least I can slide right into this Lakers season after that uh that unfortunate end for the uh for the Dodgers. And for the Lakers coming up, they have a couple more games still in the preseason that remain. They, so I believe they still have their one more game in China on Saturday. And then they play uh, against Golden State next week a couple times. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday against Golden State. And then pff, regular season for the Lakers. 
Tuesday, October the 22nd, Lakers Clippers opening night on TNT. That'll be a blast. Let's talk a little college football. There are some big games on the college slate this week. Top to bottom, the SC at Notre Dame, South Carolina at Georgia, Oklahoma, Texas. We've got Alabama, Texas A&M. We've got Michigan State, Wisconsin. We've got Penn State, Iowa. Florida, LSU. Just a stacked, stacked slate on on Saturday. And right now, we've had a, just a bad couple college weeks. Other than that, it was it was actually a pretty good year. But we're 8-9 and nine overall against the point spread after just a, a bad... We took a week off last week. We had a bad two weeks uh, two weeks ago. We're going to get off the schneid this week. We're going to get back into the positive with three plays this week. So first play, we're going to go with Iowa. And you can get three and a half in here. This is mainly a play... I just don't know how good this Penn State team is. So look around, find your three and a halfs for Iowa plus three and a half. They're home. They're four and one in their last uh, four and one against the spread in their last five games at home against Penn State. I was coming off a week where they scored three points against Michigan last week. Everybody saw that game. Penn State huge scoring outputs as of late. So I was coming off a bad game. Penn State off of. Big games where they were able to play just bad defenses. This Iowa defense is excellent, and they're at home, and you're getting that extra half, so you could lose by a field goal with Iowa and still win this thing and cover it. Let's go Iowa plus the three and a half, our first college play of the weekend. Second college play of the weekend, big game, Texas-Oklahoma. I'm going with Texas in here. This just feels like too many points. Um... Oklahoma is favored. You're seeing 10 and a half, 11s in some spots even. I think look for the tech look for Texas plus 11. 10 and a half is fine too. Anything over 10, I'm fine with. You can find the 11s out there. Texas uh in Herman, they're 10 3 and 1 in their last 14 as an underdog. I'm thinking they can go with okay. They can score with them. Now this should be a really high-scoring game because Texas's defense and their secondary is not great, but they're battle-tested. They've played a tougher schedule. That game against LSU, they've just been in tougher games than Oklahoma has. I'm going Texas. Keep this game within 10. Texas, just keep it a single-digit game, and we win. You can find plus 11 out there. Look for the Texas plus 11. And then Houston. Houston's plus 7.5. They're playing Cincinnati. Cincinnati's coming off their big win where they beat UCF. And I don't think UCF is that good this year. UCF lost to Pitt earlier. Houston plus 7.5. They are 16-3-1 against the spread in their last 20 as a favorite. And then one of those losses came at or in their last 20. 16 Three and one in their last twenty as the dog, and one of those was at Tulane, 
September 19th, that was one of the worst beats of the year. Sick beat. We were covering that game all the way. We had Houston that that day also. So they're awesome. As a dog, 16-3-1 in their last 20. I think they keep this game within a score. Does everybody saw Cincinnati last week? Oh, Cincinnati, great win over UCF. They're so good. I'm going to be a little down this week traveling to Houston, and I think Houston keeps this game close. Three plays. Iowa plus 3.5. Texas plus 10.5. Houston plus 7.5. Good luck with the college. So no, all of you out there listening, your, your football fans, your sports fans in general, stop right now and go take a look at this new app. It's called Thrive Fantasy. Go to thrivefantasy.com or download the app. Free to download the app. It's a DFS app. So it's like Daily Fantasy. But this Daily Fantasy is only for props. You build a lineup based on 10 props. So you'll look at a prop. It'll say Tom Brady over or under 250 yards passing. If you pick over, you'll get 100 points. If you pick under, you'll get 80. It'll be something like that. And you select your lineup based on the props. And like all, you're playing in big competitions against others and you win money. Last week, for five bucks, I won a contest where I took back $75. Uh, I'm in all sorts of them. You can enter contests for, you know, as l- free contests as literally as a dollar or two, all the way up to hundreds. The key is I can give you a $10 bonus credit. All you have to do sign up. Use the promo code Gino, G-I-N-O, and deposit t- and deposit ten bucks. As long as you deposit ten bucks and use the promo code Gino, you'll get ten bucks right back at you. So if you're interested, if you like to play props and you like to gamble and you like to play DFS and you just want a little more action, give it a look. Go download. Use the promo code Gino. Just put ten bucks in it, and you'll get ten right back. So if you put in ten, you'll get twenty, and then you can play in a couple contests with your twenty bucks. You can see if you like it and see if it's something that you want to get invested in. I promise you, you have a lot of fun. Once I started, this is something I play each and every week. It's more than football, baseball contests, basketball, esports, all sorts of different things. That is Thrive Fantasy. Use the promo code GINO. Moving on to the NFL. Week five. It's kind of a little little overview on week five from last week and some of the recaps. The Ravens. Pitt 26-23 in overtime. There was a really scary moment uh, in this game when Mason Rudolph, the quarterback for Pittsburgh, he got hit right up under the helmet, like in the neck, uh, under the chin, and he was laying motionless on the floor. He was not moving for a while. I'm, I'm not kidding. I thought he was dead. I was watching right here, and I, I, I was really scared, and then he finally started to move around, and it was he was just knocked out for a while. But I've had... Multiple concussions where I've been knocked out for, um, you know, extended like seconds, period of 20, 15, 20 seconds. And I, when I see someone like that motionless on the floor, I get really scared. Really scared because I've been down that road. In soccer, but freaking two concussions in soccer and then another random concussion just for being an idiot. Devlin Hodges had to come into the game. He actually didn't play bad. For, for Pitt um, Baltimore did not play well They were up 10 nothing. It was just a real lackluster game It didn't feel like a, an NFL game They were up 17-7 uh, And it was 20-7 It was 23-23 in overtime To start And Mike Tomlin kicked the ball Which is bizarre Because in overtime If you score a touchdown first you win 
And instead of receiving the ball, he kicked off to Baltimore, hoping that his defense could get a stop and better field position, which they did. When when he was asked, he said, we kept getting pinned on our in our deep in our own territory and we couldn't move the ball. So I wanted to give our defense a shot to get us the ball back in, in better field position, which they did. But then they fumbled the ball. They forced a three and out. Juju fumbles the ball at midfield. You give the ball right back to Baltimore. Three plays later, Baltimore field goal for the win. Lamar Jackson was 19 for 28, 161 yards. He did have a good game rushing, but he he was not throwing the ball very well. His deep passes have been extremely inaccurate. And it was not a great game for the Ravens, but a game that they were able to steal. Game they were they needed in a in a divisional game like that. Eagles crushed the Jets. It's just impossible to access uh, to assess the Jets without Sam Darnold, who will be coming back this week. And they've got the Cowboys, the Patriots, and the Jags three games in a row. So a little unfortunate for Sammy. Patriots crushed the Redskins. Washington uh, fired Jay Gruden at 5 a.m. Monday morning after this game. I feel bad for Gruden, though. I mean, why does he get fired? They've been without Alex Smith, Jordan Reed, Darius Geis, literally their quarterback, their best pass catcher, and their, their running back all all hurt. They've been decimated by injuries over the last couple years. Last year, they were starting quarterbacks that weren't even in the NFL late in the season. The Patriots have been sloppy. This was on Sunday, and then they just played Thursday night against the Giants, and they were really sloppy in that game. Brady's looked old. He's been banged up. I've been telling people, towards the end of the year, as the season goes on, this is what happens, and they have to run the ball more, and Brady is not the same Brady as the year goes on. Now, he's not bad. He's not done. He's not over. He just, he isn't able to make all of the same throws as a 42-year-old as he could 10 years ago. And look who the, the Pats have played. An injured Ben Roethlisberger week one. They played Miami where they had half Fitzpatrick, half Josh Rosen. They played Luke Falk from the Jets. Josh Allen got hurt against the Bills, and so they played Matt Barkley for a while. They played Colt McCoy from the Redskins, and then Daniel Jones from the Giants last night, and they were missing all their skill players. Is the Patriots defense good? Yeah, they're great. They've been really lucky. This is one of the easiest schedules I've ever seen any team to start a year, let alone a really good team to start a year. It's pathetic what they've played so far. It really is. You give any team that same schedule... They'd be in the exact same boat. Cardinals-Bengals was a, a weird game. It's kind of an ugly game, too. It was in Cincy. Cards were up 23-9 with 7-13 left. And then two long drives by Cincinnati put them right back in the game. They tied the game at 23 with two minutes left. And then a field goal won it for Arizona. It was their first win of the year. Their first win for Kyler Murray and for Cliff Kingsbury. And Cincinnati is now 0-5 for the first time since 2008. Their offensive line really struggled again. Their defensive line is bad. They gave up 266 yards rushing. Cincinnati's 0 for 5. They've got games coming up with the Ravens, the Jags, the Rams, the Ravens. Then they go at the Raiders. You know, on paper, that didn't look like a difficult game, but the Raiders are good, are better this year than we thought. They've been good the last couple weeks. I don't know how good they are, but they've played good. Since he could go Ravens 0 and 6, 
Jags 0-7, Rams 0-8, Ravens 0-9, at Raiders 0-10. Then you're home to the Steelers and the Jets. Those are probably both winnable games. They could be 0-10. They may not, but they very well could. Kyler Murray's already better than I expected. 93 yards rushing. He had a 24-yard scramble on the game-winning drive when they kicked the field goal. This kid can play. In a few years, I think he's going to be good. He's... He makes the throws and runs. He's just a combination of a lot of, you know, he's he's a better passer than Lamar. But he moves obviously and he's better he's a better runner than someone like Baker. I'm I'm becoming more and more impressed each and every week with Kyler Murray. Bills in a a, a total Bills game, right? They win 14-7 against the Titans. The the Titans and Cairo Santos missed 4 field goals. He's only on the team because Ryan Suckup had to be put on IR. So now they're really to their third kicker. He had one blocked. He missed three of them. The misses were 50, 36, and 53. They had one blocked from 33. Tennessee only had 252 total yards, though, of offense. They got four first downs off Buffalo Bills penalties. Bills had 11 penalties for 78 yards. This was a third straight road win for Buffalo. They sacked Mariota five times, and Allen only had one turnover. That's the template for the Bills to win games. Great defense, pressure the quarterback, good secondary. Allen doesn't turn the ball over. He can be an excellent game manager because when you hear the term game manager, you think, oh, what is that? He's a quarterback who can make big throws and who can run. So as And they have an incredible defense. All he has to do is not try to do too much. And this Buffalo team is in the playoffs. And if you if you're a fan of the Patriots or I don't know, the maybe if the the Ravens are going to get in there, if you are an AFC team that makes the playoffs, what about the Chiefs? If you're the Chiefs, you want to play Buffalo? Hell no. I that's the last team I'd want to play if I got into the playoffs. A team with a stingy defense like them? We saw what they did to the Patriots. They made Brady look awful. Bills now are 4-1. and one. Tennessee offensive line allowed five sacks. They committed five penalties. And Tennessee had three drops, two on third down that ended drive. So they did not look good. And a typical Jekyll and Hyde Tennessee team. Good one week, bad the next. Team that's looked really good the last few weeks has been the Raiders. The Oakland Raiders. The Raiders. And they won 24-21. They hit nine different wide receivers with a pass. They had six players with a carry. The Raiders outbears the Bears. We think about the Bears as supposed to be a great offensive coach with these schemes. You know, they're a good defensive team, but it's supposed to be this innovative offense using, you know, different ways to run the ball and get other everyone involved. And that's what the Raiders did in this game. Jacobs ran really well. He had 26 carries for 123 yards and two touchdowns. Three receptions for 20 yards. They got up early. The Raiders were up 17-0 with a minute 56 left in the half. They were absolutely dominating. And two penalties cost them even more points where they were forced to kick a field goal once and then they had to punt in another instance. There was a miscommunication on a pitch. Carr turned around and just threw the ball. And it was a fumble. The Bears recovered it at the Oakland 14. And then two plays later, they score a touchdown. So if if it weren't for that play, the Bears probably don't even get back into this game. It's 17-7 then. 
Then the Bears get all the momentum. They pick up a big third and two on a great catch from Miller. All of a sudden, it's 17-14 with three minutes left in the third. Cohen, on a punt return, goes 71 yards, sets up a Bears touchdown. So now, with a minute 16 left in the third, it's 21-17 Bears. They scored three straight touchdowns and 21 unanswered. But a big kick return by Davis from the Raiders. They're down at the 35. They get down to the one-yard line. They fumble. Again, they cost themselves points. Bears get the ball. They throw an interception. Should have been Raiders' ball at the Bears' 30. Instead, it's a roughing the passer. It gives the Bears the ball back. So the Raiders get the ball with 7.49 left. Fourth and six. Running into the kicker by the Bears. Turns into a fourth and one. The Raiders fake the punt. They get it. And on a strong drive for Oakland, they go up 24-21 to and... The Bears throw an interception on their final drive. The Raiders win in London. They look good. They look really good in this game. The Saints and the Bucks played, and the Saints won 31-24, and they finally let Teddy B air it out a little bit. He was 26 for 34, 314 yards, four touchdowns and an interception, and Michael Thomas had 11 catches for 182 yards and two touchdowns, and it wasn't even as close as the score looks. It was 31 to 17, and the Bucks scored a touchdown with 13 seconds left. Yeah, that pissed me off because that was a Godwin touchdown, which made me lose one of my fantasy leagues this week. So that that's what ended up making it 31-24, and the Saints are now 4 and 1. They beat Seattle, Dallas, and Tampa without Breeze. That saved their season. Typical up and down Bucks. Got to within 24 17, middle of the third. They had a chance to tie, but then they punted, and the Saints score on their next drive. Saints had 457 yards of total offense. The Bucks had 250. Saints had 345 passing yards. The Bucks had 158. On third downs, the Saints were 8 for 15, and the Bucks were 3 of 11. Vikings crushed the Giants. Cousins threw the ball really well. He was 22 for 27 for 306 yards and a couple touchdowns. Thielen had seven receptions for 130 yards and a couple touchdowns. Dalvin Cook was really good, like he's been every game this year. 21 carries for 132 yards and six catches for 86 more. And it's the Vikings doing what they generally do to inferior opponents. Their defense smothers them. Four sacks and a safety. They held the Giants to just 211 total yards compared to the 490 for Minnesota. And then after a big second quarter, it was really over. The Vikings were up 18-7 at half. Giants kicked the field goal to make it 18-10, but the Giants came back and scored a uh, but the Vikings came back and scored a touchdown, put them up 25-10 and that was it. Barkley should be back soon. The Giants then went and they, they were feisty in a game on Thursday night against the against the the Patriots, but they just did not have any any of their skill players around to help them out. Panthers, Jags, Minshew Mania came up a little short. The Panthers won 34-27. This was all about McCaffrey, who had 19 carries for 160, 176 yards and two touchdowns and six receptions for 61 more yards. And Kyle Allen was okay. And that's all he needed to be in this game because Minshew turned the ball over three times. Minshew was very good like passing the ball, looking downfield. He had 374, 374 yards, two touchdowns. He had seven carries for 42 more yards, but he lost three fumbles. That was what hurt. It was 7-7, and then a fumble on a handoff by Minshew. Carolina got the ball at the Jags 24. 
And then a McCaffrey touchdown pass Seven points off the turnover and the short field The Jags are driving in Carolina territory Minshew hit as he goes to throw Fumbles, touchdown for Carolina 14 straight points off Minshew fumbles So now you're down 21-7 Because of the two fumbles And that was the difference in the game The Jags moved the ball well all throughout the game They came back and scored It was 21-14, then 21-17 after a field goal McCaffrey hit a big run though They just could not stop McCaffrey most of the game 28-17 But he kept coming back Shark and Fournette It was 28-24 with 10 minutes left in the third Um, There was a missed 46-yard field goal And a 56-yard field goal That was blocked earlier in the game it was a big stop on 4th and 1 for the Jags They get the ball And then Fournette breaks a nice run 48 yard run And a field goal puts the Jags up Or excuse me Field goal puts them down by just 1 28-27 With just 5 minutes left There's a 3rd and 1 The Panthers get it And then the backup running back Bonafone breaks a 59 yard run They miss the extra point though so the Jags still have a shot with 3.30 left They move the ball Minshew loses it He fumbles it again Carolina gets the ball with 2.19 left They throw an interception The Jags get the ball at the 24 yard line The interception was actually called incomplete So Carolina has to punt Instead of the ball at the 24 The Jags are 3rd and 10 from their own end zone They pick it up They get all the way down to the Carolina 24 with a few shots to end to win the game at the end to tie it up, couple chances at the end zone, but they couldn't connect. There were multiple penalties that kept giving them another shot. The Jags are fun to watch. They they should have won this game too. You give you give away fourteen points off turnovers and you give the ball away three times like that. It's almost impossible to win when that happens. Weird game with the uh, Houston and Atlanta. Atlanta was winning this game. 17 to 16 at the half And The Texans scored a touchdown on the first drive of the second half Then a field goal and quickly they're up 26-17 then an Atlanta punt And an 88 yard Houston touchdown drive Atlanta goes from being up 17-16 to down 33-17 like immediately This game was all about Will Fuller 217 yards Receiving on 14 Receptions, 3 touchdowns Watson Had 426 yards, 5 touchdowns passing He was 28 for 33 And he rushed for 47 more yards Hopkins had 88 yards receiving Uh, QT had 72 yards Houston had 592 yards of total offense And they were 10 for 13 on 3rd down At the start of the 4th quarter uh, Houston muffed a punt Atlanta got the ball at the Houston 16 They scored a touchdown They're only down 33-25 with 11-21 left They get the two point conversion But there was just no stopping Watson He comes right down the field for a touchdown They get up 40-25 to Falcons come right back though Still down only 8, 40-32 But Texans just stay aggressive They hit Fuller for the third touchdown Of the game And they're up 47-32 With 151 Left and then uh, an Atlanta Pick 6 makes this game 53-32 Houston scored 37 points in the second half Atlanta cannot run the ball They cannot stop anyone And they could not get Julio involved in this game Denver beat the Chargers 20-13 Denver just hit the Chargers hard early 
plays of 26, 21, 12 yards, 6, 5 in a yard on their first drive. Just all positive plays. Chargers picked up a first down, then they punted. And then Denver on their next drive, a 70-yard pass to Cortland Sutton. Quickly, Denver's up 14-0. And then with their defense, that changes the complexion of the game. It makes it so hard to to just consistently run the ball when you're down 14-0 like that. It actually should have been 21, or it should have been more, but they fumbled at the 21. And then they allowed a, a punt return for a touchdown. They had 12 penalties for 122 yards. They actually gave up five first downs via penalties. Denver could have won this game by 20. The Chargers were banged up, though, and they were trying to incorporate Melvin Gordon into the game, and then they're down early, and they're trying to run the ball and incorporate him with Eckler. He had just 35 yards rushing, just 2.2 yards per carry. There were uh, a lot of short passes to Eckler. He had 15 receptions for 86 yards. And the Chargers have seven projected starters out due to injury. Derwin James, safety. Russell Okung, tack, offensive tackle. Phillips, the safety. Badgley, the kicker. Hunter Henry, the tight end. Melvin Ingram, the defensive end. And Mike Pouncey, the center. Literally all over the field. They are hurt. Packers. Packers beat up the Cowboys. It, the final score was 34-24. Aaron Jones had four touchdowns, he had 19 carries for 107 yards and seven receptions for 75 yards. But the score of this game was 17-0 at one point and then 31-3 at one point. It was actually 24-0 and then 31-3. And it, you see Dak had a lot of garbage time stats. Like He had 463 yards, two touchdowns. But he had three interceptions, and Amari Cooper had 226 yards on 11 receptions, but he had a big drop too. The Packers punted right away. The Cowboys got down to the Green Bay 38, but then Dak throws behind a receiver off of Cooper's hands. It was a Green Bay interception. It still should have been caught, even though it was a bad throw. Green Bay returns the ball to the midfield. Five plays, 75 yards, touchdown. Aaron Jones had big runs of 18 and 11 on the drive, and they go up 7-0. Dallas hits a 46-yard pass, but then a big 10-yard sack cost them a field goal attempt. They were in field goal range. Green Bay came right back with a 9-play, 89-yard touchdown drive. Boom. First quarter, you're up 14-0. And that just puts you in a great spot. Dallas was driving. They had a holding penalty, then an interception. Just not a great throw from Dak in the middle of the field in traffic. Dak was sacked a little later on a big third and four at midfield. It's 17-0 at halftime. It's 24 nothing. then it's 31-3, and then Dallas is able to score on four of their next five possessions. They even get back into the game where they, they're down 31-17 to with 10-27 left in the game. The ball's on their own 34. They have the ball. If they go score here, it's a one-possession game. First play, interception. And it was a tough one because there was a lot of contact on, on Gallup in that interception. But Green Bay gets the ball, they drive, they kick a field goal, they go up 34-17, and and now the game's over. Dallas scores a late touchdown to make it 34-24. Green Bay looks good. They're they're one of the best all-around teams. They seem to be the most well-rounded and well-built team. And if they can run the ball like this, and they're starting to run the ball a lot better, which is what LaFleur wanted, when they get Adams back, we know that Rodgers can make a big play if need. And this defense is really good. The Colts 
with a big upset over the Chiefs. And this is Frank Reich is a really good coach. What we've seen now with the, the last few weeks, teams that have played against the Chiefs is teams play against the Chiefs, they're playing more man coverage. Mahomes is just 15th in the league versus man coverage, which is more dependent on the receivers getting open. It's not as much about Mahomes, and they have not had Tyreek Hill or Sammy Watkins. You know, they don't really have a ton of dynamic playmakers out on the field. They just have guys out there. Colts 19, Chiefs 13, and the Chiefs just couldn't run the ball at all. They had 14 carries for 36 yards total. 2.6 2.6 yards per carry. Mahomes was 22 of 39. He had 321 yards, but he still missed 17 passes. And he's looked a little off. He's only been 31% in the red zone success rate, which is 25th of 27 quarterbacks. The only two who have been worse, Baker Mayfield and Chase Daniel, in their red zone success rate. The Colts had a really good game plan a balanced attack, run the ball, keep the ball away from Mahomes. They had 180 yards rushing. Mack had 29 carries for 132 yards. They had 151 yards passing. 331 total yards for the Colts to KC's 324. Kansas City kicked a field goal to start the game. The Colts scored a touchdown, and then KC scored a touchdown. So they were up 10-7. They scored on their first two drives. 14-08 in the second quarter after an Indy field goal. It's 10-10. There was a bad throw from Brissett. Kansas City got the ball on the 37. McCoy with a nice screen run, but he fumbled the ball on the Colts 15, and then we didn't see a lot of McCoy after that. And Mahomes is just a bit off. He's missing a few throws, a few overthrows. Indy kicks a field goal. They're up 13-10 at the end of the half. And at the end of the third, Mahomes got stepped on by one of his own linemen in an ankle injury. And you could see he's kind of hobbling around. The key to this game was the Indy drives. And them just dominating the time of possession. 37 minutes and 15 seconds compared to Kansas City having the ball for 22-45. The Indy drives, they went 14 plays for 8 minutes and 34. 11 plays for 518. 6 plays for 356. 11 plays for 610. Some steady drives right there. And the Kansas City O-line, they are ranked towards the bottom in run protection. Terrible at, at blocking for the run. They were not good at at blocking for the pass, really, because they gave up four sacks on Mahomes. And they had 11 penalties for 125 yards total. It was just not a good game from Kansas City. And a very good game from the Colts. They were well coached, even missing some players on the defensive side of the football. Colts won that game 19-13. And in a blowout on Monday night, we saw the 49ers just crush the Browns 31-3. Now, in this game, it was 14-3. The Browns were driving. Callaway drops a touchdown. It bounced into the uh, arms of a 49er defender, and instead of being 14-10, it's 21-3. That's it. That's the game. I mean, that's a huge swing. The 49ers are currently ranked number one in DVOA, which is uh, rankings by football outsiders. What they do is they rank teams based on everything. Combining their efficiency, their statistics, their numbers, their opponents, their great, great rankings. And the 49ers are the number one ranked team right now in DVOA. They had the single best game performance of the season so far in this game against the Browns. They were at home, they were coming off a bye, and the Browns were coming off a big win that they needed the week before against Baltimore. 
The 49ers have the number two ranked defense, and they're only two because they're behind the Patriots who have played that really weak schedule that we talked about. This team is better than I thought, the 49ers, but how much? Offensive solid, excellent scheme and run game, great defense. I thought they were going to be like a 7-9 team before the year. Now they look to me like at least a 9-win team. But are they a 9-win team or a 12 or a 13-win team? I need to see more from them when they play against, the, in particular, the Rams this weekend and then Seattle. Because I still don't know with the 49ers. They played the Tampa Bucks, right? And Tampa had two pick sixes. Was that a game where San Francisco forced them into playing poorly or where Jameis just plays poorly? Because we've seen Jameis just play poorly against poor, poor, poor opponents. They crushed the Bengals, who are a bad team. They beat Pitt, and they had five turnovers that day, and they still beat Pitt, and Pitt is a bad team. And then... San Francisco crushed the Browns, and we've seen the Browns, when they come out and they play poorly, they can look really poorly. So I don't know, since nobody's played well against them, is it them? How much of it is their, the 49ers de-causing that? Or how much is it that they've, in a small sample size, caught four teams in different weeks where those teams just didn't play well? Huge game coming up. Short week against the Rams. Uh, would love to see a, a good performance from the 49ers, and then we can say that they're for real. The Browns, just so inconsistent. They look good at Baltimore, didn't look bad against the Rams, but the penalties, the sloppy mistakes, Baker struggles, offensive line, coaching, they have a lot of little things. And it feels like when you watch a game like this from the Browns, that they're like, wow, they have millions of things. They, they, they don't have a, they're not far off. They're really not. We'll see if they can clean things up going home to play against uh, Seattle this week. Those are your Week 5 NFL games. Remember, we always got to go back in time before we move forward. So always going to recap the games and watch all the plays before we start to formulate our our thoughts and wagers for the next week. On to Week 6. Let's talk the uh, the Week 6 NFL slate. So first game of the Sunday is in London. We have a London early game with Carolina versus Tampa. Uh, Carolina minus two and a half against Tampa in here. And I like Tampa in this spot. Carolina, we just talked about how they were beneficiaries of three fumbles from the Jags. So they're coming in off of a couple wins where I think they look a little bit better on paper than they've actually been. They had a backup running back break a 59-yard touchdown. They scored 14 points. The Bucks lost to the Saints. And it was a down week for the Bucks. Remember, two weeks ago, they had that big win against the Rams. So you felt like they were going to kind of have a down week. Still don't know how good Carolina is. Let's go Bucks plus two and a half in London. It's going to be one of the six plays for me this week. And we'll recap all the plays at the end. Second game is Washington at Miami. <laughs> Good luck in this one. Uh, Washington minus three and a half at Miami. These are two of the four winless teams. Are we going to get a tie here? Washington's coming off uh, a week when they fired Coach Jay Gruden. Looks like it's going to be Case Keenum starting or Colt McCoy uh, backing him up. Miami's coming in off the bye. I mean, good luck in this one, folks. I, I can't give you an opinion here. If, it- if At three and a half, I would just lean home with Miami. These two teams look bad, but at least Washington's had 
some games where they've been in the mix. Minnesota at home against Philly. Minnesota minus three for Philly. This one's a stay away for me. The Eagles are coming off their wins against the Packers and the Jets. Minnesota just beat the Giants. They were able to throw the ball well. I would lean Philly, but I'm not going to make a play here. I like the fact that they're starting to run the ball well, and they're kind of transitioning into more of a, a Howard running game. They're, they've got some of their skill position players back now with Jeffrey, with Goddard. doesn't look like Deshaun Jackson's going to be back. And just look at the... the um, the rushing. Game two, they had 2.2 yards per carry. Game three, 4.2 yards per carry. Game four, 5.3. And then game five against the Jets, they only had 2.9, but they were crushing the Jets early. And I don't think they were really getting creative trying to show the Jets a bunch of their good runs. I'd lean Eagles. No play. This should be a good game, though. I'm very I'm I'm excited to watch these two teams lock up. Kansas City. Against Houston, Kansas City minus four versus Houston. I'm going to make this one of my plays this week. Uh, I like this one quite a bit. Kansas City just looked bad last week. There's been two weeks in a row where they haven't looked great. They just stuck by Denver a few weeks ago. So they're coming off their loss on Sunday Night Football. This game opened up at six and a half, and now it's down to four. Kansas City minus four against Houston. It's just... Two teams coming off of totally different games, right? Houston looked great. They scored 53 points. Watson was awesome. Mahomes coming off one of his worst games as a pro. He didn't look good. Maybe his ankles hobbled a little bit. We're not sure if we're going to get Watkins or Tyreek Hill. I'm hearing more that it looks like Tyreek Hill might play and not Watkins. So if I don't know if that's built into the line. That line probably goes back up a little bit if, if Hill's playing. Houston's defense, their secondary, is miserable. They gave up 32 points last week to Atlanta. I think this is going to be just an up-and-down game where a lot of points are scored. And I think I think Kansas City comes out and wins this game pretty handily after, uh, after that disappointing effort last week. KC, one of the plays for me. Jags, Saints. The Jags uh, are at home. They are one and a half point favorite against the Saints. And I like Jacksonville in this spot. Jacksonville should have won last week. If they don't fumble the ball three times, they beat Carolina. And they still have a chance to, to tie Carolina late. And Teddy is looked so good last week. Everyone's going to go, oh yeah, Teddy Bridgewater. I think it's the perfect week to play the Jags. There's been a lot of tickets being bet. I've, I was listening to uh, uh, John Murray from the Westgate talk about lots of tickets Every ticket is basically on the Saints, but somehow the line has moved in the Jags' favor, which is always a little sneaky. I like Jacksonville in this one. They're running the ball well now with Fournette. He's third in the league with 512 yards rushing. They might get Ramsey back. They're just a fun team to play because they give you, especially when they're an underdog, they're a slight favorite in this spot, but you're basically playing this game straight up. They're They're feisty. No quit. They give you a good run for your money. Jags at home against the Saints is going to be one of my plays this week. Seattle, minus two at the Browns. I like the Browns, plus two in here. They were never going to beat the 49ers, but as that, that whole game would have been different if Callaway catches that pass. It's 14-10 in the second quarter. Instead, it's 21-3. 
The Browns look really bad in their losses, which makes them a really good team to bet after their losses. The betting public only likes to do what they saw last week. Whoever just looked good, that's where the public goes. And that's generally where we go against. Seattle. People just saw Seattle beat the Rams. Did they really beat the Rams? Zyrline missed a 44-yard field goal. He is 112 of 115 on 44 yards and in. Tyler Lockett caught a pass in the back of the end zone that was the most improbable catch since 2017 by the next-gen stats. Wilson scrambled for 24 yards at 13 miles an hour. The pass traveled 39 yards in the air, and Lockett was 0.2 yards from the sideline, 1.1 yards from the back of the end zone, and 0.9 yards from Eric Weddle the moment the pass arrived. So Seattle needed a missed field goal and the most improbable catch of the last two years in order to win that game. And if Seattle doesn't win that game, maybe they're not favored on the road here against the Browns. This this Browns The Browns were favored just a few weeks ago in this spot. It was Browns minus two, and now it's Seattle minus two. Look at Seattle's wins. They beat the Bengals week one by one, and they should have lost that game. The Bengals should have won. They outplayed Seattle week one. They beat Arizona in a real lackluster game. They beat Pittsburgh when Ben got hurt. That was the game when they when Ben got hurt and they were playing against Rudolph for most of the game. And they beat the Rams off the missed field goal. This team could very easily be like two and three. And now they're going on the road, traveling, Early game against the Browns. Browns plus the two, one of our plays this week. Baltimore, Cincy, won't really have a play in this game, uh, but I do recommend giving a look to Lamar Jackson in Daily Fantasy. I think he will bounce back after his poor performance last week. Baltimore got that sloppy win against Pittsburgh. This just feels like a game that will be high scoring because Baltimore's defense is not good. And uh, this is a get-right game Against Cincinnati, I think Baltimore beats them up. The reason why I wouldn't play this game is I could see Baltimore being up 17 in this game and then a late Cincinnati score hurts you because the line in this game is 10.5, 11, depending where you're looking. That's just too much for me. It's a no play. Cincinnati has the 31st ranked pass defense and the 26th ranked rush defense. And Baltimore has the 23rd ranked pass defense and the 24th ranked run defense. So not good defenses passing against the pass or the run. And Baltimore is fifth in overall offense. So they should be able to score at will against Cincinnati in this spot. Give a look to Lamar, though, in your uh, in your daily fantasies. Rams minus the three versus the 49ers. This game at three is where you have to take the Rams. If it gets up to four or five, that scares me. But at three... Oh, I think you have to take the Rams in here. Now, there are a few reasons why. San Francisco's a very good team. I said, everything we've seen from them so far, very good. But how good? Because we don't know how good their opponents have played against them. Who are the 49ers? They're coming off a big win on Monday Night Football where everybody saw. The Rams are coming off a loss on Thursday Night Football where everybody saw. Rams should have won. Maybe if the 49ers don't crush... This line is up at 5 or 6. 49ers are missing both of their starting tackles and Kyle Juszczyk. Their run game might be hurting a little bit this week. We don't know if Gurley's going to play for the Rams, and honestly, he hasn't been as big of a factor. I don't know how much that would really hurt the Rams this year. 
One of the keys to this game is the Rams' offensive line is not giving Goff a lot of time, and they have been pretty bad throughout most of the year. And the San Francisco defensive line is excellent. That's the big matchup in here. This should be a fun game, and I just think it's a tough spot for for the 49ers on a short week off their big win, playing against a Rams team that absolutely has to win this game. The Rams cannot go to 3 and 3. And if San Francisco wins this and they go to 5 and 0, oh, you know, you're 3 games behind in the division. This is a must must win game for the Rams early in October. Atlanta is minus 2 at Arizona. Atlanta coming off a game where they gave up 53 last week. Zona got a win on the road against the Bengals. And Murray has looked really really good. Normally I would play Atlanta in this spot. I just can't I can't do it. I can't play Atlanta right now on the road. Uh, I can't play Atlanta with their defense. They've looked bad. I could see Kyler Murray, you know, being able to kind of have his way with their defense. They've got some injuries on the defense. Uh, Atlanta does. This is the one team so far this year I feel like I've been dead wrong on. I thought Atlanta would be a playoff tier team and they have not looked good. And their lone win, they very easily could have lost that game. Remember they got the big screen pass to Julio late? And Aguilar dropped the touchdown pass? I do think Julio has a big week this week, though. And, and So if you're um, playing DraftKings, FanDuel, uh, Julio's generally one of the more expensive wide receivers. But he does usually bounce back when he has uh, the week after he has a, a slow week. Dallas at the Jets... Dallas is coming off back-to-back losses. This feels like a get-right game for them because they've had you know that early schedule that was really, really easy and then two tough games that they lost in a row now. But Sam Darnold's going to be back for the Jets. So that, that's why this game is weird to me. It's Dallas minus 7 at the Jets. And if Sam's good and he's ready to go, maybe this line's a little too high. The Jets are coming off a bye. I will say that Jamison Crowder had a lot of success with Sam Darnold in week one and Jam- and Sam Darnold had a lot of success at USC with receivers that uh, out of the slot which is Jam- which is uh, Jamison Crowder so make sure uh, as a kind of a cheap play in DraftKings and FanDuel Jamison Crowder could be uh, could be a good receiver to include now with, with Darnold back he's had a few lackluster weeks but remember those were weeks with, with Luke Falk and with Simeon no play, really, in the, the Dallas Jets game. Denver minus two at Tennessee uh, versus Tennessee. Denver's at home. Denver's coming off their win against the Chargers. Tennessee off their loss where they missed four field goals. This is the type of game that Tennessee rebounds and and plays well. I just I don't know confidently enough ever what to think of Tennessee. So I just I'm gonna steer clear of them, but I would generally like to play this game with Tennessee the week after they they looked poor against Buffalo last week. Sunday night game is the Chargers minus six and a half versus Pittsburgh, and the Chargers are really banged up right now. Went through the list of their all their their injuries a little earlier on. They need this game. They've had another week now to to incorporate Melvin Gordon through practice. They've blown a couple games so far early in the year like the Chargers tend to do. P. 
Pittsburgh's got to travel. They got to come off a tough overtime loss in the division where they thought they were in overtime. They have the ball. They started celebrating. They thought they were going to win that game. And they're starting Devlin Hodges. And they have no James Washington, no Jalen Samuels, and Vance McDonald might be banged up. I don't like this spot for Pittsburgh at all. I don't really like to lay six and a half points with the Chargers, but under seven, I'm fine with it. So take the six and a, get the six and a half with the Chargers, lay them there. They're going to be one of my plays this week. And then the final game of the week is the Monday Night Football game, Green Bay, my, uh, Green Bay against Detroit. Detroit's been pretty good. When we talked about Detroit at the beginning of the year, they were the one team that was strangely projected high to make the playoffs by football outsiders with their DVOA projections. They had Detroit winning the division. They could easily be 4-0 instead of 2-1-1. They should have beat the Chiefs. They should have beat the Cardinals. But the good start to the year, if you lose this game, Detroit, and you're 2-2-1, and you're it feels like, ugh. We're just like 500 and we could have we had a great five weeks and we should be so much better than that. The Packers are coming off their big win against Dallas. The line in this game is Green Bay minus four. It feels about right to me. I wouldn't I'm not gonna play it. I would lean Green Bay, but no play. Detroit's coming off a bye. Okay, so 20 and 12 against the spread so far this year off a 3 and 3 week last week. We're going to have six games for you this week. Tampa in the London game right off the bat early morning plus 2 and a half. Kansas City minus 4 bouncing back this week after the loss last week to the Chief, uh, to the Colts. Hopefully they can get healthy and I expect the, them to come out firing a big game from Mahomes. Jags, minus one and a half. They're at home against the Saints. Jags coming off that tough loss where they turned the ball over a few times. Saints coming off three consecutive wins where they've looked good. And we're going to play the Jags. The Browns, plus two. They're at home coming off that bad loss Monday night football. Seattle's coming off the lucky win on Thursday night football. And they have to travel across country for an early game and play the Browns. In a game that the Browns got to bounce back and play well. The Rams absolutely need this game against San Francisco. The 49ers are off their big win. The Rams off a really tough loss. They have to come out firing in this game. And the Chargers off a bad loss at home to the Broncos. They are minus six and a half. They're dealing with a Pittsburgh team who has to travel. So six plays this week. Tampa plus two and a half. Kansas City minus four. Jags minus one and a half. Browns plus two. Rams minus three. Chargers minus six and a half. Six plays this week, trying to improve on the 20-12 and 12 against the spread numbers. Couple horse racing plays for you this weekend. We'll bounce all over. We have a play at Belmont, two plays at Santa Anita, two plays at Keeneland. Before we get into those, though, I want to let you know about one of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast, full-service realtor Cindy Carava. If the name sounds familiar... Cindy is the wife of trainer Jack Carava, who you know from Santa Anita and the Southern California racing circuit. He's been a trainer down here for 30 years. I've known Cindy for the last decade. She is one of the kindest, most genuine people you will ever met, and she can take care of anything you need in the world of real estate, buying, selling, leasing, uh, if you want to upgrade your home, if you are just looking to find out how much your home is worth, maybe you need help 
getting pre-approved for a loan, or you're just like searching in the market, any questions at all, talk to Cindy Carava. I, I promise you she will take great, great care of you. The website, cindycarava.com, or you could send her an email with any of your questions. Tell her hello from Gino, cindyc.realtor at gmail.com. So let's go to Belmont Park for October the 12th, and we're going to go to race number eight at Belmont Park. I like the seven in here, Extreme Force. This is a maiden special weight, seven furlongs. These are two-year-olds, and you're looking at the seven Extreme Force. He's going to add the blinkers today. He's raced three times in his debut. He drew the rail. He missed the break, and then he moved up into traffic. He was waiting behind horses with run, but he had nowhere to go. He was able to get off the inside. He ran third that day behind Greenlight Go, who won the Grade 2 Saratoga Special and then was second in the Grade 1 Champagne. And then another Miracle, who won a Maiden Special 8 and then won $100,000 turf stakes. So that was a loaded race where Extreme Force finished third. Came back in his second career start on August the 3rd. It was a bad stumble. He went down to his nose. It took a few strides for him to get going. But then he moved up on the inside. He was traveling well. He ran right into traffic. He had to wait behind horses. He was a little bit flat late. He wasn't stopping. He just wasn't moving as well as others, but he had trouble early, and then he had to run into traffic. In career start number three, August 31st, the third place finisher in that race was the next out maiden special weight winner at Churchill, and the winner, three technique, was entered in the champagne. He was going to be my top pick in the champagne before he was scratched out of there. An extreme force again had a slow start. He hopped. He ended up inside behind horses. He would he couldn't run his race because he was at the mercy of the race shape. He's kind of shuffled back. He was shuffled all the way back to last. And then he got bumped around when he was trying to move inside. He's been unlucky. Now he adds the blinkers. They could get him a little bit more focused. He goes from the inside to the outside. In his three starts, he's drawn post one, post two, and post three, all down towards the inside. Now he's to the outside with post seven. And in all three of those races, he was was kind of stuck and he was in tight and he was forced. I'm expecting him to show a little more speed with the blinkers and to be on the outside in the clear. If we get anything around six to one on extreme force, we're going to make a nice win wager on the seven extreme force force in race number eight at Belmont Park on Saturday. Let's get you over to Keeneland. Let's go to Keeneland Saturday. And at Keeneland, we're going to go to race number six, which is a maiden special weight. Two-year-old fillies traveling six and a half furlongs. Let's go to the outside with the number 12, Flatoya. Four to one on the morning line. Flatoya in the debut at Ellis just missed. That was going five and a half furlongs. Then stretched out to a mile at Churchill Downs last out. Broke well. Was just about two, three lengths off the pace on the inside. Was third. Moved up nicely into contention. Then waited for room. Angled outside with dead aim. Got a great opening. Was about a neck from the lead late in the stretch. And then just tired. I love this turn back in distance for the 12 Flatoya. If you get anything around 7-2, to you bet to win. This, to me, looks like an absolute single in the exotics. The number 12, Flat Toya, 
Let's single in race number six at Keeneland, and we'll make a nice win wager on Flat Toya if we can get anything around that three to one, seven to two. And in the ninth race, we're going to go to the QE2, where you have a, a very strong hand for Chad Brown with Cambier Park, Cafe Americano, and Regal Glory. And that's the one that I'm going to land on Regal Glory. Where's the speed in this race coming from? There is no speed in this QE2 cup at all. I think Regal Glory, if you're Chad Brown and you're looking at this race, don't you have to tell Saez, hey, let's send this horse. There's not a lot of speed. You might be able to get out on the front and cruise. And if somebody wants to go to the front, she can sit. In my opinion, Regal Glory is the filly that gets the jump in here on everyone else. And so I, I'm hoping she's right on the leader sitting close. And that's what I'm expecting looking at this race on paper. The nine, Regal Glory. We will bet the nine to win Regal Glory if we can get anything around four to one on Regal Glory there. And that is uh, at Keeneland, the nine in race number nine. Let's move to Santa Anita. Two plays. For Santa Anita on Saturday, October the 12th Let's go to race number 8 And let's go to the 7 Cover version She made her first start on the dirt On August the 16th And she hadn't raced From November of 2018 to August It was her first start on the dirt It was her first start for James Cassidy It was her first start in the US She'd only been running long on the grass And she went 6 furlongs on the dirt at Del Mar She ran really, really well in a field of 10 to finish 4th, she started closing late. She was just outrun early. They were going a lot, a lot faster early than she's used to. She was dead last. She was 15 lengths out of it. She angles around and in between, and she really got going late. And that should set her up nicely for this mile on the dirt, flat mile in the dirt race. I'm expecting major improvement. Her down one going long on the, the dirt on the inner track at Aqueduct, so dirt shouldn't be any issue for a four-year-old daughter of Medaglia Dioro and a dam that won on the inner at Aqueduct. Cover version. In the field where Unicorn's going to take money, Sheer Class is going to take money. Sheer Class was in front of cover version when they last raced, but I think cover version going long will improve even more with those long-distance turf races under her belt. The 7 cover version will use as the, the late exotic single, and at 5-2, to two, we'll make a win wager on the 7 cover version. And then the ninth race. This is an optional 40, non-1, and we're going to go to the one Nolo Contesto. A flat mile on the turf, Nolo Contesto, was in the Del Mar Derby last time out and was 7th. And I think, you know, he was bumped at the start. He got shuffled back a little bit. He was 8th of 9. He was 10 off. He was too deep. He, he got going late. He just might have been in a little bit too tough. Moody Jim was also in that race. And Nolo Contesto was only about half, half a length behind Moody Jim. And I think you'll get a better price on Nolo Contesto here. You'll get the, the chance for Nolo Contesto to save ground from the inside. Look at the races uh, that Contesto's coming out of. He was behind Neptune Storm in that Del Mar Derby, and Neptune Storm went over to win the Grade 2 Hill Prince at Belmont. Carnivorous won an optional 80 next out, and the 7th place finisher in that race came back to win an optional, uh, to win a $32,000 claimer. Look at Mr. Money there. 
That was the beginning of Mr. That was like the second race in Mr. Money's win streak. And Mr. Money just had that win streak snapped when he was a, a unlucky second in the Pennsylvania Derby. He lost a couple times to Roadster and Kingley. Nolo Contesto getting some class relief. Save ground from the inside. At 7-2, to two, we'll make a win wager on Nolo Contesto. So just to repeat for you one more time. The two plays at Santa Anita. Race number 8, the 7, cover version. Race number 9, the 1, Nolo Contesto. Over at Keeneland in race number 6, it is the 12. Race number 9, it's the 9. And at Belmont Park, race number 8, the number 7. So two plays at Keeneland, two plays at Santa Anita, and uh, one for you over at Belmont. Hope we can make you some money. Let's close things out with just some overall thoughts on this new world of wrestling. Wow. Right now, on Mondays, we have Monday Night Raw. Tuesdays, there's a new show that's called NWA Power. If you're an old school wrestling fan and you remember the NWA with the studio wrestling, where they would be, you know, small ring in a studio, they would do all their interviews right there in the studio. Same thing. And they have graphics that make it look like it's the 70s. It's a real throwback. I loved it. What I love about this NWA Power Show is that it's different. You can't try to be beat the WWE by just being a lesser version of the WWE. You have to go different. So Monday we've got Raw. Tuesday we've got NWA Power. And we've got a show that's called AEW Dark, which is the All Elite Wrestling Dark matches that they don't show on TV the week before that's hosted by Tony Schiavone. On Wednesday night, we've got All Elite Wrestling Dynamite and NXT. And now on Friday night, we've got SmackDown on Fox. So it, it is unbelievable how much wrestling content is out there right now. So far, we've seen All Elite Wrestling on TNT. Uh, Jack Swagger has uh, made a debut for them now. Jake Hager, he's in a faction with Chris Jericho. Then All Elite Wrestling, in their, they've had two weeks now. And they've beat NXT both weeks. There was a little bit of a ratings drop for both of the shows from week one to week two, as one would expect after a big premiere. We're coming off WWE Hell in a Cell, which was just a brutal way to end. The the early part of the show was not bad, but the way that pay-per-view ended with a disqualification in a Hell in a Cell match, horrible, horrible booking. And I'm recording this on Friday, and as as of Friday tonight, Friday Night SmackDown, there's going to be a big start with the WWE draft. There's going to be over 70 superstars that are going to be drafted between Raw and SmackDown. And it seems like it's going to be one of the more legitimate things they've ever done, where they're actually going to act like it's a sports draft instead of the other drafts they'd have where they just say, oh, this guy's on this team, this show, and this girl's on this show. We'll see how they're going to handle this. Because Fox has been putting the money in the WWE. They have been promoting the WWE. Fox wants this relationship with WWE on SmackDown to work. We saw Tyson Fury, if you're a boxing fan, and Kane Velasquez. They are both going to be wrestling in an event on October the 31st in Saudi Arabia called Crown Jewel. Tyson Fury is going to be wrestling against Braun Strowman. And Cain Velasquez is going to be wrestling against Brock Lesnar, who they fought in the UFC before, previously. 
There's going to be a Team Hulk Hogan versus Team Ric Flair match at that event, which is going to take place on a Thursday in the middle of the day. If you are a wrestling fan right now, this is just a fun, fun time. All week long. So if you're not a fan of WWE and what they're they're giving you right now, that's fine. You got all elite wrestling you can go watch. If you're a real old school wrestling fan, turn on NWA Power. It's on YouTube. You'll love it. Or all elite wrestling kind of has a WCW vibe to me. And the good vibe of WCW. Smackdown on Fox. They look like they're going to be trying to have a lot of crossover, a mainstream crossover with uh, other athletes. NXT on USA has been awesome as far as if you're just if you just want good matches and good wrestling content, flip on NXT on USA. So much happening in the world of wrestling right now. Uh, it's very exciting to be a wrestling fan. Folks, that's going to do it for this episode of That's What G Said. If you can, please head on over to iTunes, leave a nice five-star rating and review. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Google Pods, everywhere you can, and you'll get every single episode of That's What G Said delivered right to you. Let's send them home, Joey.